the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial. We come to you courtesy of the WellMed Charitable Foundation on 9.30 a.m. The answer, now we're going to be talking in a few minutes about something every single person in America needs to know about, and it's Justice in Aging, an organization that tries to provide for seniors uh, legal leverage for issues that are putting them down, keeping them down, causing them problems, and that'll be coming up in just a couple of minutes. Well, and a lot of a lot of people do realize how difficult it is uh, economically for a senior um, and issues surrounding that, uh, but they may not realize what we can do to combat senior poverty, which is growing astronomically. That's Carol Zerniel, who many of you know is chairman of the National Council on Aging, dealing with these kinds of issues, and executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a nationally known gerontologist, and the issues of poverty and dealing with those uh, challenges are just phenomenal. As we learned last week, four million Baby boomers turn 70 uh, every, every year. year. Every, every year. year. Four million. So have a birthday. Four million more people yeah. are 70. And, you know, and 70 is, is one of those – it's 65. It, their age is really meaningless. But health does tend to decline as you get older. Things do happen as you get older. And 70, you know, once you're on Social Security, on that fixed income, that's when things can get rough sometimes. And speaking of health – You have a list. I love when you have lists. You have five things that we ought to do after a hospital stay. Well, during and after a hospital stay. So this comes from, again, from the website on Next Avenue. This is... um it's a it's a list for your for your hospital stay uh, to help things go better for you while you happen to be there. Um, it's only five things, and the first one is so important, and it's when you're in the hospital, have someone who is smart, professional, and assertive stay with you to serve as an advocate. So love is an option on this one. It doesn't have to need to be the relative who loves you the most. It needs to be the person who's observant and a cool cucumber who can make sure that whatever they're supposed to be doing or whatever you need and no one's around to notice that it's going to happen. You had that experience in a hospital out there in Amarillo. Well, I don't know anybody who has not had someone in the hospital and, and realized someone has to be there. If you were to ask other physicians, they would tell you, never go to the hospital alone. A hospital is one of the most dangerous places you can go to. Um, you know, my experience was my father had broken ribs, but he was in there because he had a heart condition that caused him to black out. That's how he broke his ribs. Um, and they're constantly checking his sugar when he wasn't diabetic. And they were constantly moving him around in bed. They didn't look to see he had broken ribs. Um, and, you know, they weren't addressing the, his pain. Every time they moved him, that hurt like heck. Well, it did, and Ooh. he was on, and they, they told us that he had been given pain painkillers, and he had not been given any, and they couldn't prove it. So that was the cool cucumber in our family that was doing that work. But it, it really is true. Never let someone go to, I wish I, I wish it wasn't, never let someone go to the hospital by themselves. You need somebody to be your advocate uh, while you are there. Uh, and if you're in the hospital, uh, be a good patient. So if you're in pain, if something has happened, there's a reason you're in the hospital, you're probably not going to be your best. So being a good patient uh, means that, you know, you're going to listen, uh, put your best face forward, 
that's going to improve your likelihood of getting better care and and getting the best options and you know honey instead of you know screaming uh but you also want to be really nice to your nurses and rely on your nurses. The doctors are going to come and go at the briefest of moments. The nurses are the ones that are going to be there over the long haul, checking your vitals, checking your meds. You know, those are the people you want to get to know and have your advocate get close to during your hospital state. Try not to be irascible. Yeah, you don't want to be that. Um, And then, you know, really try to understand what's going on. If you're in good enough shape, try to understand what's going on with you, what the treatment options are, uh, and have a mechanism in place for to get the best opinion on those treatment options. So that can mean that you need to have your advanced directives in advance with that advocate that went with you in case you become incapacitated and they can act in your best interest. And you want somebody who's clear thinking that's going to help understand what those options are. And let's not let that slip by. What that really means is you need to do an advanced directive while you have all your faculties, while you're okay. That's right. That advanced directive, that medical power of attorney, you need those documents. Um, All of us need those documents. Um, And number five is once you get out, write a letter to the hospital about that nurse that provided you that good care, about that person at the hospital who was a shining star, uh, because they need to know and reward the people who are doing a great job, and they don't get enough of that, and they will... You know, you're going to help the whole system when you recognize the people who provide good care. That's a really good point. I like that. Uh, And uh, coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to talk about uh, justice in aging. Faye Gordon will be with us, staff attorney at Justice uh, for Aging, and we will get her on in just a few minutes. Uh, I I want to pick up on where we were last week. It's funny. You were reading my mind. Carol held up the sheet. 2016 Alzheimer's Facts. And figures. Well, the 2016 report just came out, and when you look at some of these numbers, they're really, really um, startling about the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease is growing so fast. Uh, we've got 5.4 million Americans living with Alzheimer's already, and of those, 5.2 million of them are 65 or older, only 200,000 are under the age of 65. One in nine people over the age of 65 has Alzheimer's, um, and by 2050, someone will develop Alzheimer's every 33 seconds. That's going to surpass wow. the 4 million people you were talking about yeah. earlier that were turning 70. And the older you get, the greater the risk of developing Alzheimer's. The greater the risk. So, you know, and what, is, what does it mean when you get Alzheimer's? It's increased mortality. So 61% of people with Alzheimer's um, will die before the age of 80 compared to 30% if you don't have Alzheimer's. So greatly increased risk of mortality. Um, and then there's the cost and the need for caregiving. Right now we've got almost 16 million caregivers providing 18 billion hours of unpaid care. 18 billion hours of unpaid care. And that's an, uh, the, the economic value of that is $221 billion. The problem is, is that 41% of these caregivers um, are in a household income of less than $50,000 a year. Now, we touched on that last week with Ai-jen Poo. Uh, talking about caregiving across generations. Well, that's it. And so what we're talking about are people who quit their jobs to take care of somebody else. We've got all this unpaid care. Or if you are a paid caregiver, very low-wage pay. Um, and it, it's really taking a toll. And if you're a caregiver, so you're already making less, you're going to spend $15,000 out of pocket a year at least. Um, on providing that care. And obviously, if you're caring for somebody in an assisted living or nursing home, that number goes up to sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, uh, which is pretty scary. So, our, the costs, you know, to the country are just going up. The financial impact on families is increasing, and so. You know, Alzheimer's disease is is really coming under the spotlight. Right now, it's every 66 seconds that somebody gets the disease. Um, You know, it it kills more people than breast and prostate cancer combined. Um, It's costing our caregivers too much. So Alzheimer's is serious business. I know we talk about there are a lot of caregivers for a lot of other diseases, and we don't want to give them short shrift of cancer and Parkinson's and uh, ALS, a lot of different diseases. It is the sheer magnitude of the Alzheimer's disease problem that is overwhelming the long-term care system. And we're hoping the policymakers are finally going to take notice. And a lot of those folks who have been unable to continue work in the workplace, it affects ultimately their Social Security. 
Well, it because does. they draw less. They draw less Social Security. They draw less in wages. And then you end up with this, this cycle of poverty. We're going to talk about um, justice and aging. And so if you're a middle-aged woman who's quit her job to take care of a family member, because it still usually is the woman, right. um, then you're going to increase your risk of going into old age with higher poverty, lower income, mm. uh, just because you did right by your loved ones. It's an awful burden. Pretty serious stuff. It is. And so for those of you who are listening who are letter writers or phone call makers, you know, call your elected officials and let them know that you're concerned about whatever condition your loved one has, whether it's Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and let them know that you're concerned about family caregivers. Let them know about the sacrifices you're making for caregiving um, and communicate to them that you're hoping that they're going to help address these issues. Let's turn to another topic, which is uh, equally challenging, and that's the whole question of polypharmacy. Oh, so yeah, we're shifting gears to polypharmacy, which if you're a caregiver, you know exactly how many medications most likely. That's a dining room table covered with meds. Your loved one is on. And there was kind of a scary article in the New York Times. It was Paula Spann that that looked at it. um, And they were talking about why polypharmacy. So polypharmacy means that you're taking five meds or more. And we know that most people over the age of 70 are like on 12 medications. Uh, and, and it's, but it's, the problem is increasing because, you know, as somebody from Johns Hopkins said, you know, the cardiologist is going to put you on the best evidence-based medicine for your heart. And the endocrinologist is going to do it for your bones. And then you, as an individual, you're going to go down to your health food store because you want to, you know, maximize your health. And you're going to go get some omega-3s or get some aspirin over the counter. And you're going to add that. And pretty soon you're the older person and that's on 14 different meds because that those vitamins, those supplements that you're taking all count as medications. And too often we don't bring those to our doctor's appointment to let them see what we're really on, so potential interactions are overlooked. Well, that's it. And since 1999 to 2012, there was a 70% increase in polypharmacy in just in the last 12 years, 70%. Um, wow. You know, a lot of that has to do with the Medicare drug plan, that Part D that actually covers meds, so people are getting People are living longer, but um, it's the it's the 40% of us that are taking over-the-counter medications and not talking about it um, that's really getting us into problems. You know, we just don't communicate as well as we should with our health care providers about the medications that we're taking. And so the takeaway on all of this is there are a lot, you know, if you're on omega-3, if you're taking omega-3 um, and you're taking a blood thinner, did you know omega-3 actually thins your blood too? And it can be a double effect. So it's dangerous or you there can be side effects that you don't know about. So the takeaway that we want you to know about polypharmacy is if your loved one is taking five or more meds, you need to absolutely get the over-the-counter, the supplements, and the prescription drugs together in one place. Either take it to your primary care or your pharmacist wow. and ask them to check it out. And don't forget to do that. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we are going to turn to Justice in Aging. Faye Gordon will join us. She's the staff attorney there talking about how to fight for seniors who are affected by poverty and a whole lot more right here on 930 AM, The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and caregivers. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people who care for them. Programs like Caregiver Teleconnection, Caregiver Teleconnection is a free, bilingual, and confidential program connecting caregivers and family members to information and support through the telephone. Each Caregiver Teleconnection telelearning session is hosted by professional facilitators and experts, giving caregivers the opportunity to connect with and share with others in a similar situation. With Caregiver Teleconnection, learning and support is just a phone call away. Find out more at 866-390-6491 or go to caregivertelekinection.org. Thank you very much for staying with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The Answer, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And if you 
hear what sounds like a cough drop clanking around in my mouth, it's because there's a cough drop clanking around in my mouth. <laughs> I have a scratchy throat. Well, it's the allergies. We're, we're in South Texas where the show is recorded, and I have to say, you get these alerts on your phone. Most people have alerts about the weather, and we have alerts about, oh, my gosh, the pollen is astronomically <laughs> yeah, high. Exactly. Grab your cough drops. Don't go outside for the next eight days. <laughs> Try not to breathe. Well, we've got a nice opportunity to talk with Faye Gordon, who is the staff attorney uh, with Justice in Aging. We tracked her down out in California. Uh, Faye is a graduate of the University of Maryland School of Law. Uh, was an intern with the uh, Subcommittee on Aging and Health in the Senate in 2009 when the Affordable Care Act was marching through Congress. And uh, you were there when uh, politics was really at its highest art form. So, Faye, thanks for coming on with us. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be a part of this. You know, uh, we the work of the the Justice and Aging. Now, you had another name once upon a time, the organization. Yes. Did you not? Yes. We um, we did. So we were founded in 1972 with the name the National Senior Citizens Law Center. And we had that name for over 40 years, and it was great. But about a year and a half ago, we decided we need something that's a little bit more action-oriented that really explains what we do. Because what we do is we use the law to fight senior poverty. And so we came up with the name Justice and Aging, and we formally, officially changed our name just over a year ago. So rebranded, got a new logo, and, and what is your website? Yeah. Mm-hmm, exactly. It was quite a process. Our communications team was incredible. Um, I had no idea what it means to change your name after 40 years, but yes. <laughs> quite yeah. an effort. Well, and Exxon, it, it helps explain you know, Exxon went better. through that when Exxon changed its name from Esso Gasoline. They had to do the same thing. Oh, I think it was when, when we everything was AT&T, you know, being from Texas with Southwestern Bell. That was a big right. one. Right. But, but justice in aging. So, you know, this is such a huge issue in senior poverty. Do you all ever look at the laundry list of issues related to senior poverty and economic security and what you need to do and go, oh, my goodness, there's so much to do? Yes, um, and, and unfortunately, some things that can be challenging when we're discussing our work is it's, it's very sobering and it's very serious and real, and it can be overwhelming, but we try and keep things in order. Um, and we remember there's 6.4 million seniors that are currently living in poverty, and so that number really drives our work because we're very concerned that that number is already too high and the number is growing. Um, we know that 10,000 people are turning 65 every day. So if you just look at demographics, that number will grow. But unfortunately, due to the Great Recession and enduring income inequality, we're, we're very concerned about the rising numbers of senior poverty and then what that means for people's access to quality health care and quality economic security and housing. So it, it is overwhelming, but um, we try and focus and, and think about the people um, that are, are living in poverty and their caregivers who are caregiving for them and, and try and stay focused and motivated. But, yes, <laughs> it can be quite daunting. Well, when you say living in poverty, what is your definition of poverty? So we believe the supplemental poverty measure is a more accurate measure of poverty than the current federal poverty measure. And this gets a little bit wonky, but the federal poverty measure is what the U.S. Census Bureau uses to determine poverty. The U.S. Census Bureau has also um, introduced this additional measure called the Supplemental Poverty Measure, and that really measures a senior's true cost. So we know that a senior um, has different costs and expenditures than um, a younger person or a, a family. You know, we know that seniors spend a disproportionate amount of their income on their health care needs, their, on their prescription drugs and their co-pays, even when they have Medicare, um, and their transportation needs may be different. And so the supplemental security, I'm sorry, the supplemental poverty measure um, measures those true costs in a more accurate way. And that's where it comes up with this this um, number of 6.4 million seniors. What, what attracted you uh, to work on aging issues? You, you strike me as someone who's what, maybe in your 30s or 40s? <laughs> um, yes, I, I am in my 30s. Uh, recently in my 30s, yeah. <laughs> so you, you got that right. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's funny, my colleagues and I talk about this a lot. How did we get interested in aging and what drives this work? And for all of us, there's a personal connection. And I, I assume that for you as well and for anyone who's working in gerontology or the aging field, there was a personal um, draw to the field. And so I've always been very close with my grandparents. Um, and then 
personally, I saw um, the really broken long-term care system that we have in this country when um, I was starting law school and an aunt needed to move in to a nursing facility, and I saw the challenge of my family um, with the Medicaid application and, and just the devastation of the fact there is no strong long-term care infrastructure in this country and no real way for people to plan and prepare for these devastating costs. So it was a, it was definitely a personal interest of mine. Um, and then professionally, the timing was very interesting with, with our healthcare law um, when I was sort of getting out into the field. And so it's, it's been an interesting journey. Well, Faye, you were talking about, um, you know, the, the lack of a long-term care system. Yesterday, mm-hmm. For I was calculating, I have four relatives that are actually in a facility. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, these are people who were nurses, mechanics, farmers. These are not wealthy, high-paid individuals. Um, and for the mm-hmm. four members of my family, uh, the family is spending $28,000 a month to provide wow. care yeah, for four people. <laughs> Which, yeah. you, which you, when you think about it, you know, none of these families can afford that, those kinds of costs. Um, and right. so, you know, it's a pretty fast road. They didn't arrive into old age in poverty. It's pretty quick to get there um, at that kind of a spend rate. Yes. And, and it's, it's, um, it's, it's just straining on, on everyone. And there's, I mean, I, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, if the, 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 that, those numbers, the $28,000 a month. Sadly, that is repeated everywhere <laughs> across the country. Um, and as you said, so many people find themselves spending down and spending into poverty. And when I mentioned that 6.4 million number of people, current, seniors currently living in poverty, that doesn't actually include the 1 million people who are living in long-term care facilities who've spent down um, to to remain um, and receive that care. So the numbers are even higher when we factor in these long-term care spend down. For those of you who just joined us, we're talking with Faye Gordon, who is the staff attorney for Justice in Aging. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer, Caregiver SOS on air. Well, so, Faye, tell us a little bit about the issues that are of greatest concern, whether it's for seniors or caregivers. You know, what's at that long list? What's at the top of the list? (laughs) Yes. So um, we focus our work on two areas, and we believe that to help seniors age in dignity, they need access to quality health care, and they need economic security. And so that really helps us prioritize our work. And currently, one thing we're very excited about um, is our work on the Supplemental Security Income Program. So this is part of the Social Security Program, and for individuals who are very low income, um, it is an income program to help them meet their basic needs. Unfortunately, this program has not been updated since it was signed into law by President Nixon in 1972. So as I'm sure we all know, inflation has changed dramatically since 1972. Um, A lot has changed since 1972. And a lot of the rules regarding eligibility and the income and asset limits for this program have not um, been updated to reflect our changing world. So we've been working very hard on a piece of legislation called the SSI Restoration Act, and we're thrilled that we've got excellent support from senators on the Hill, Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts introduced this bill, it's been introduced in the House by um, Representative Grijalva of Arizona, and we're hoping, um, you know, that, that as we all know, this is an election, so there's not too much action taking place on that currently, but we're hoping um, to continue to build the momentum and awareness for this piece of legislation because we think if we can help seniors get better access to this program um, and remain on the program and not face interruptions in the program, that they'll be able to meet um, their economic needs more efficiently. So that's on our economic security side. Well, um, well, before before, pers- before oh, you move please. on from that one, what does that mean yeah. in, in for you know, uh, the one older person, if they, if you can improve SSDI, d- is it more money in their pocket at the end of the year? Is it more access to benefits like um, like the old food stamp program? What does yes, that show? Well, importantly, what it actually is, is it's helping make sure they don't fall deeper into poverty. So these rules are so antiquated that they set certain limits on the amount of money people can actually have to qualify for the program. So people can only have $2,000 in current assets to qualify for the program. And there's very archaic ways that these assets are counted. And what we want to do is make sure that people don't have to fall deeper into poverty before they get those basic income support. 
Um, unfortunately, so many people who are on SSI are actually homeless because the rules make it so difficult for them to maintain any sort of um, asset safety limit. And it takes, it, it takes an yeah. incredible amount of time to even get an application heard. And while yeah. I've never been mm-hmm. able to prove this, my sense is every one of those hearing examiners is trained to deny, 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 and make you appeal. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know about that, but I, we do know at the, that a huge, um, there is a huge learning curve with making sure that people are trained to understand the needs of SSI, um, individuals who are receiving SSI. And as you said, a huge barrier is the application process and the appeals process. Um, we are doing another project to help improve the appeals process so that people who are denied, wrongfully denied, will actually um, get a fair appeal for their benefits. Well, and, and, so it's, and you mentioned that this law hasn't been updated since 1972. $2,000 was mm-hmm. a lot of money in 1972, not exactly. so much in 2016. <laughs> exactly. When you think about <laughs> what that was intended for in 1972, it was not the $2,000 that we have <laughs> today in 2016. We're going to come back to you in in just a moment, but let Mm -hmm. me point out that Richard Nixon was a Republican. He signed the bill, Uh, but today you mentioned folks who are with you on this. I didn't hear a single Republican. We'll talk about that in just a moment because the politics are pretty challenging. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. Faye Gordon is with us, Justice in Aging Staff Attorney. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Well, you're with us, and we're delighted to have you here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. We're talking with Faye Gordon, who is the staff attorney at Justice in Aging, trying to help the 6.4 million-plus seniors who are in poverty, and uh, there are millions more who are pretty close to poverty. And we were talking about SSI and uh, Social Security supplemental income and ways in which uh, folks who are in need can get help. And we were talking about, just briefly, the politics. Uh, it shouldn't be political, Faye. Uh, people grow old. Uh, senators and congressmen from every party have older people in their families. Uh, but it does become political, does it not? Yes, of course. I mean, everything is political. But as we, as we mentioned earlier, the original signer of the SSI bill was President Nixon. He was the one who signed it into law. So we do think that, you know, poverty is, is a universal challenge. And we're seeing a little bit of a shift on both sides and um, focusing more on poverty and talking more about poverty and talking about poverty in seniors. Unfortunately, I think this is because it's becoming a much more urgent problem. Um, we've seen, for example, baby boomers were significantly hit by the Great Recession, that 50 to 64 age bracket. Um, many of them lost their jobs and struggled to regain employment. Many of them lost equity in their homes um, and to get mortgages, reverse mortgages that are now difficult to repay. Many of them um, struggled to get insurance, so now they're entering Medicare um, a little bit more sick and with more chronic conditions. So as, as people are seeing these challenges in their communities, we are, we are seeing um, both sides, both Democrats and Republicans, talking a little bit more um, about poverty. And we're, we're hopeful that, that there is a momentum growing to focus on this and to really um, address the needs of seniors in well, our community. Well, and even before the Great Recession, baby boomers had some of the lowest savings with two-thirds, mm-hmm. you know, one-third living already living in poverty and another third with living paycheck to paycheck. And so then the mm-hmm. Great Recession hits. We've got a pretty bleak economic outlook when we, we're talking about the generation that's about to retire. Yes, exactly. I mean, when, we're, when you think about the volume of people who are about to retire, um, as we, we always say that same statistic, 10,000 people a day, 65 and over, and you think about what they've endured um, over the last 10 plus years economically, and you, you mentioned it exactly, this, the savings is a big challenge, particularly um, for people who never had a pension. So, you know, prior generations, there were pensions, there were defined benefits for retirement, and most many people who are aging today do not have that. And if they had a 401k, they lost a significant amount of that um, in the during the Great Recession. So that's one area of concern. We're also, as we're advocating for seniors, we're thinking about seniors to be. So we're not just thinking about the current seniors and the the, the those turning 65 in the next few years. But we're very concerned about what happens um, with a younger generation that is facing even um, 
more difficult <laughs> economic challenges and saving challenges. There's a, a wonderful um, professor out of the New School in New York who, who conducted some analysis and found that if nothing in our policy changes to strengthen Social Security and to strengthen retirement security, that there will actually be 25 million seniors in poverty in 2050. And so that's a number that's, that's very alarming. Well, <laughs> when you go from six, really... yeah, from six million to twenty-five right. million, that's a giant increase. Exactly, okay. that's a big, big jump. And um, that's that's essentially the people who are, are millennials and who are working today, who don't have access to pensions and defined benefit retirement plans. So um, we're we're trying to look out for everyone and and build a stronger economic and, and healthcare safety well, for, and, and, for all, but it's a challenge. And the good news is is that there are recommendations for Social Security. There are ways to mm-hmm. strengthen it that are it's not crazy complicated um, to identify some of the choices. Not always everybody's happy about them, but there are some ways right. to strengthen Social Security. Um, well, you mentioned you we were talking about the top of your list, and you, you mentioned the, the supplemental security income. What else is mm-hmm. up there on the top? Up there on the top is definitely Medicare and Medicaid for us. So um, as I said, we've got our economic security focus, and then we have our health care focus. And we see tremendous value in ensuring access to um, health care programs that help low-income seniors and making sure these programs are delivered without discrimination and they're delivered efficiently without interruptions for people. So one, pro- one programmatic area that we work closely on is making sure that individuals who are dual eligible, so this means people who have both Medicare and Medicaid, so they are generally lower income because they qualify for both programs, that their Medicare and Medicaid is being delivered in a way that's um, efficient and works for them. So we've been working on different Affordable Care Act programs to um, try and strengthen the delivery of services for those individuals. We also um, are looking at our long-term services and support system and trying to figure out how can this be delivered in a way that's more efficient and and really helps people. So for us, we believe that most people want to receive care at home and in their community. We know that there are some people who do need and want care in nursing facilities, and we have to make sure those nursing facilities are high quality. But most people want to age at home and in their community. So how can we make sure our home and community-based services network works well. And one thing we're very excited about on that end, as I'm sure you've, you've all heard and we're all so thrilled, is that the president um, did sign the Older Americans Act reauthorization bill into law just last week. And so we know this will be crucial for protecting um, our amazing network of home and community-based services that we have right. across the, the country. And for those that aren't familiar with the Older Americans Act, that's the, the federal legislation that pays for, most people know, Meals on Wheels. You may know about senior centers and congregate meal sites. Uh, but there's also, it has the National Family uh, Support Program for, for family caregivers. Uh, and so the area agencies on aging are part of that network. And um, if you go to eldercare.gov, if you don't know who your area agency on aging is, we know you have one. Everyone has a, an agency assigned to, to help take care of the elderly and caregivers in their community. If you go to eldercare.gov, it will can, can point out the area agency on aging in your area, and you can ask about those services that have now been reauthorized. We're talking with Faye Gordon, who is the staff attorney for Justice in Aging. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air. Faye Gordon, how are you all funded? We are funded. Oh, we love getting that question. <laughs> we are funded um, through foundation grants. Um, we have we have wonderful foundations who help support our work. Um, and we are also funded through um, individual contributions and individual donors. So um, if you are interested in finding out more about us, our website is justiceinaging.org, spelled exactly as it sounds, justiceinaging.org. And we have more um, information on our funding as well as information on um, contributions on that website. Our annual report will be released, I think, this week. So there's there's um, a whole host of information on and our you're funding a, there. you're 501c3, so... Donations are, are tax deductible. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have any initiatives? Uh, obviously, caregivers are very concerned about the poverty. They're concerned about Medicare and Medicaid. Do can you, off the top of your head, can you think of anything in particular that is of you're working on that would benefit those family caregivers uh, that are usually middle aged women? Yes. Um, 
one thing that we, we focus a lot on is person-centered care and long-term services and supports. And we know right now there's a shift in our long-term services and supports to putting it into um, many different types of managed care. And there's a great opportunity here as people are getting more coordinated care um, and person-centered care plans to involve the family caregiver. So we really want to make sure that as families are going through the care planning process, that the caregiver is there and at the table and that the caregiver's needs are being assessed and are part of that person-centered planning process. So there's a really good positive movement in our healthcare system that we're working on to to truly implement truly person-centered care planning. And we think the caregiver is a part of that and we want to make sure that the managed care plans and the the, um, healthcare providers all understand that the that the caregivers needs need to be a part of, of that person centered planning process. Well, and you know, it's it's interesting that you say that. Um, we were on a telephone call with a managed care organization, and we were asking about support for family caregivers. And their idea was that every once in a while, we need to pat that caregiver on the back and tell them what a great job they're doing. I mean, that was literally the conversation. Mm. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I think where it, it, it I, I, I agree with you and I, I feel there's a shift and there's a recognition on family caregivers. But what we see is that many times um, within the healthcare professions, they're not, they're only thinking of the caregiver in terms of what they do for the care recipient. And they're not thinking right. about the caregiver as a distinct individual who, if you do not meet their needs, their stress, the things that prop them up, then they're not going to adhere to that care plan. They are not going to be able to take care of that loved one. Exactly, exactly. And we need to make sure that that there isn't an over-reliance on family caregivers and these care plans and that that instead these care plans really figure out, okay, what kind of respite does this caregiver need and how do we get the personal care hours that an individual needs to try and alleviate the already overwhelming burden. Right. And that's a, that's a really good point about the over-reliance. Uh, uh, you know, you hear stories where, oh, well, you know, the, the person leaves the hospital and the caregiver has got this long list of things. They're going to do this and they're going to do that and they're going to do this. Um, and we don't ask the question to the caregiver, you know, are you willing to do this and are you able to do this? Right. And more and more, mm-hmm. this involves uh, really medical treatments and procedures well, for the it, caregiver. Th- that you know, and that's true. We've talked about some of the medicalization of caregiving and the and the healthcare tasks, mm-hmm. um, AARP, um, in, and the um, oh, I'm blanking on it. Carol Levine with the United Health uh, Fa- United Hospital Foundation's work um, identifying the healthcare tasks that caregivers are asked to do. Um, and, and all of that, all of those tasks again relate back to the the security of the lo- of the person they're caring for. So, so Faye, mm-hmm. um, you know, what's on the horizon? What do you know? What would you like us to know about with justice and aging? What should we be? How can we help support your work? I think the best way to support the work is when you're you're having conversations about our changing healthcare delivery system. And again, again, I forgot to mention I, I'm a little bit more focused on that the healthcare side than the economic security side. So I apologize if I <laughs> wasn't quite as clear on that. But if we're we're talking about you know our changing healthcare delivery system and the innovations that we have, but there's so many different exciting pilot programs and demonstrations and innovations. I want to be sure that a part of that conversation is the senior, and, and, and very often, as we know, it is a poor senior. And as, as um, healthcare systems and states and federal governments and everyone tries to propose these different new programs that they think, okay, what is the actual impact going to be on a poor senior? Is she going to have trouble accessing her care? Is she going to have to go through some very difficult eligibility and appeal process? How can we make this easier for her? that she gets the care she needs to receive at home. Um, and so if we, we try and approach these problems with that that point of reference, I think we'll, we'll really improve the lives of low-income seniors. I noticed that one of the things that uh, you all target are populations that are uh, traditionally at higher risk, women, people of color, LGBT individuals, people with limited yes. English proficiency. Uh, when it comes to LGBT, when you look at the really older population, most of those folks were closeted. They, they weren't out front. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't talking about or getting help for what uh, their needs were. Yes, we um, we did a study, I think it was about five years ago, and it's on our website. It's called LGBT Stories from the Field, and it was a survey 
of long-term care residents and caregivers and staff to try and understand the particular long-term care needs of LGBT individuals. And what the study revealed is that many times um, LGBT individuals individuals in a long-term care facility don't receive the care that they need because they're afraid to come out or they are afraid to to have their partners there. There's a lot of fear. I do feel comforted in fact that that study is now a few years old and we hope that the um, cultural competency is changing at long-term care facilities. We're seeing an effort from different providers to try and improve the competency of their staff. It's a big priority for the administration to gotta try and improve Got to stop you right there. Oh, yep. We are flat out of time. But you're a great oh. guest. We, we'd love to get you back at some point, Faye. Thank you very much. Right. Faye Gordon with Justice in Aging, justiceinaging.org. And you can get all the information that you need and maybe send them a couple of bucks. It wouldn't hurt either. This is Caregiver SOS On Air. Up next, Take 10. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Centers. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. Caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. That's WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Take 10. We follow each of our regular Caregiver SOS on-air shows with Take 10, featuring... Carol Zerniel and Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known therapist who deals with issues from caregiving to addiction and a whole lot more. And Carol, as you know, a gerontologist of wide renown. And you've got a great topic, the attitude of gratitude. Attitude of gratitude. You know, I've been thinking about this recently. I will be honest. A friend of mine has is taking care of her husband who has cancer and he has been has received a terminal diagnosis, which sounds, you know, which is very unfortunate. But she and her husband have been so thankful for the life that they've had. They're saying goodbyes. They're making me feel like I have no problems. You know, I started thinking about all the good things in my life. And it really does change your perspective when you try to look at it about, you know, what? what is it I'm thankful for? And wake up and look around you. And, and Jamie, you know, it, we also talk about uh, making a, a list of things you're thankful for when we do stress reduction classes. Oh, without a doubt, Carol. And I think a gratitude list is in sync with every disorder and every problem and every time we get ill for any reason. In fact, uh, gratitude is the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where I first heard the term attitude of gratitude. It was an AA meeting on Capitol Hill, um, literally down in the basement for recovering senators and House of Representatives. It was called the Attitude of Gratitude meeting. And, it, and that sounds and, kind of counterintuitive. You know, what does alcoholism have to do with gratitude? Well, alcoholism, as well as any mental health challenge, as well as with caregivers when they're feeling overwhelmed, if they take a moment to focus on people and things that you're grateful for in life, other things fall by the wayside. I, I mean, it's so difficult to be you know, angry and grateful at the same time, or it's so difficult to be jealous and grateful at the same time. And also to that point, uh, alcoholism, like mental health challenges, become self-engrossing, if you will. We, we kind of become consumed with our own selves. And what gratitude does, it, it really allows us to connect to the outside world. And and that's why I believe the attitude of gratitude is so pervasive, far beyond AA. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned senators and congressmen uh, in an AA meeting. It is the great equalizer. It is, Ron. It you is, may be rich, you may be poor, no you may be a Republican, you may be a Democrat. It doesn't matter. You're an alcoholic. 
No, it's a chronic and terminal illness. End of story. And no matter how wealthy you are, it's just like cancer. Um, and no matter how you know broke you are, you can get it. It's it's very very random. Like you said, it's the great equalizer. Um, but I also believe that that this journal, you know, it, it has real legs, Carol. Uh, um, I don't know things that I've gone through lately, and we all are human beings and, and tend to think of ourselves working our brains out like human doings. But for one, I've been actually more concentrating on a, a gratitude list as well, and uh, some some medical challenges I'm working through right now. And I tell you what, it takes me out of my my head. It gets me off what I call the pity potty, and it allows you really to feel like alive again. In fact, I, I remember somebody told me in the alcohol and drug business when I was um, running a treatment center, um, they said we can only be, uh, be said to be alive in those moments when our hearts are, are conscious of our treasures. I think that's what the quote was. And that's what gratitude does. It allows our hearts to be conscious of our treasures. And and we're not talking necessarily about some sort of a, a spiritual or a religious kind of you know, thank you, God kind of list. I mean, it might be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. No, no. As a matter of fact, you know, this is what his spirituality is all about, um, literally to me. Um, it, 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 I think it transcends any sort of religion. I'm not accepting or not in religions either way. Like you said, it's a wonderful community that hopefully reminds us to be grateful. But literally coming out of ourselves and, and appreciating those treasures within ourselves is its own level of spirituality. So why does it really why does it relieve stress? Is there something, you know, in our brain is there something physiological that happens when we stop and slow down and think about what we're thankful for? Is it like running and is it triggering dopamines? Yeah, I think you know, Ron is square on there. It does affect different uh, sections of the brain and just like running and uh, and the endorphins it creates. I think we we can shift our minds and and, and go into the gratitude phase. And things will shift inside of us. Listen, there's some incredible studies in Eastern medicine. Many of you know um, Sophie, my wife, is, is studying to be an acupuncturist. And she bought, brought me a book home where they showed particles of water um, from very toxic areas and from very clean areas. And then they showed people's emotions and how it affected uh, the fluids in their body. Because, you know, we're mostly fluids anyway. And you could truly see an attitude of gratitude felt clean. I mean, you could see under the microscope where all the kind of depressing and angry issues that we go through shows a whole different cell. Well, that's it. And and so so stress, unhappiness, uh, a lot of the um, burdens that we carry, carry around when we're a caregiver are negatively impacted. We, we have higher levels of chronic illness when we're stressed out. We don't feel good. We're not happy. And it can become a very vicious cycle where we're just caught in this stress and caregiving and anger and frustration and hopelessness. And, I mean, you can really get wound up around that kind of a negative cycle. And we have to do something you, you, that stops that. You can get that. out of that, though. That, this, this, the gratitude is the beautiful doorway out of that, that self-engrossing peace. You know, I, I used to see patients and who I felt were never grateful <laughs> And, and and I always ask them to do a gratitude list if they could and go home and they go, I don't have anything grateful to be about. You know, my life is hell. I'm overwhelmed. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. And I go, well, maybe you're right, but let's try something out. And they said, what? I said, well, I'm really sorry about, I heard about your daughter. Your daughter was in an accident, I heard, and, and got very injured. And they say, no, my daughter never got injured in any accident. I go, oh, Really? I said, well, I'm sorry about your husband because I heard, heard your husband got laid off from his job. And, and they would say, my husband? My husband never got laid off from my job. And I would continue doing that over and over again until I said, there's your gratitude list. <laughs> That's fine. Oh, it took him a while to get it, huh? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah it, it, it took him a while to get it. Well, we um, are doing an aging mastery program, which is a new program from the National Council on the Aging and our senior centers. And week one is they have to write a gratitude list. And so they go away, they come back with a list, and one of the senior center directors was sharing with me that number one on several persons' list was being thankful for the thankful list. 
that they were really appreciated, you know, the um, opportunity to stop and be thankful and and have an attitude of gratitude, um, that that was one of the best things that had happened to them in a long time. Now, we hope you are grateful for this show. And if you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS on air. Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zernio with us. I'm Ron Aaron. Give me some examples of uh, the gratitude that you think of, Jamie, when you when, when you think of gratitude. Well, for, first of all, I mean, you can go to any place. I, 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 it really goes back to people and relationships for me. Um, I, I'm always grateful for my mom and, and her being there because she was the pivot point for me, either going south or north in my life. And I could have well gone south and not been on this radio show today and, and pretty much been meaningless. But I'm always grateful that she cared enough and hung in there enough and intervened enough and then, of course, now I'm 60 years old, um, I'm so grateful for having a, a, a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. I mean, my Lord, I, I, it was a curveball from God, as we all know, but I have to tell you, this is, again, a relationship that, that somebody can never take away from me. So I'm grateful for my friends. I'm very grateful for doing this show. I love being connected to you, Ron, and, and Carol, and to the caregivers and the listening audience. Uh, these are things that, that really mean a lot to me and, and bring me out of my my funk when I get into it. The other day, Reagan said to me, Daddy, will you be my best friend? Oh. My little heart melted. And I said, yes, you're my best friend, too. The next day, I, I, I told her, hey, Reagan, you have to stop doing whatever she was doing. She looked at me and she said, you're no longer my best friend. Oh. <laughs> you're in and list. out, in yeah. and out so quickly. Oh, yeah. yeah, they're, you know, tight. But didn't that moment, no matter what age we are, yeah. Ron, that moment when she right. said it and looked into your eyes, yes. didn't we feel grateful? And it was timeless, and it didn't matter whether we were 20 or we right. were 90. Yeah. It is that beautiful thing that gratitude takes us back to the moment, it takes us out of the stress of, of tomorrow or the fears that we got from yesterday, and it brings us to the moment. Well, we got to stop you right here. It's a good way to end it. This is a good segment. Carol. I know. I've got a smile on my face. I'm just grateful yeah. for, for, for everything at this point. That's you know, really listening cool. To, to all of you. You've been listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel, our co-host. And we will catch you again next week. You want to hear a podcast of this show? Be grateful. Podcasts are available. You can get those from Caregiver SOS dot org www.caregiversos.org for carol and jamie i'm ron aaron we'll talk with you soon on 9 30 a.m the answer you've been listening to caregiver sos on air presented by the wellmed charitable foundation email suggestions and comments on this radio program at wellmed.net and join your hosts ron aaron and carol zerniel for another edition of caregiver sos on air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.